So, uh, I want to begin by reading the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 26 to 31, Lord willing. And I want to begin by reading this text, and I'm going to pray, then we're going to work our way through this really powerful passage of, of Scripture. It's going to be a great blessing to us today. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, and the title of this message is The Great Pride Crusher. Beginning in verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and justification, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to this passage, we need eyes to see and ears to hear. We need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to teach us and to instruct us what is in this passage. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that you would richly bless them and manifest even greater grace in their lives as a result of this passage for anyone here today who is without Christ May today be their wedding day. May today be their day to be joined to Christ through saving faith. Do a mighty work in this house of worship here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Every step of the Christian life is a step lower and lower in humility. When you entered the Christian life, you entered through the narrow gate, and none of us strutted through the narrow gate. We all came on our knees with deep humility, saying, in my hands no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We could not have been any more humble. And Jesus said, to enter the kingdom of God, you, you must deny yourself and take up a cross. He said in Matthew 16, verse 24, if anyone shall come after me, he must deny himself. It must be the death of self. It must be the end of self. Self-life is over. You must deny yourself and take up a cross. And what is a cross? It's an instrument of death. He's not talking about Jesus's cross. He's talking about your cross, my cross. And for the rest of our lives, every moment of every day, we are to carry a cross which is an instrument of death. And we are to die daily to self that Christ would be fully alive within us. If any man shall come after me, he must deny himself, take up a cross, and follow after me. And where is Jesus headed? He's headed to Calvary. He's headed to Golgotha. He's headed to his own crucifixion. And he invites you and me to come follow him to our death to self as well. That's how we all began the Christian life. Uh, we, we came to the cross with lowliness of mind and an empty hand. Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7 says, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And how did we receive Christ? We received him with humble faith, humility, lowly posture. How do we follow now day by day with Christ? The very same. 
In fact, we are to be lowering ourselves even more with each passing day. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. What's number one on the list? For walking in a manner worthy of your calling. Next verse, verse 2, with all humility. And the word humility means lowliness of mind. We are to live in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We are his slaves. He our master. He is our bondservants. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. We belong to him. He must increase. I must decrease. My life is not about me. It's about Christ. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ. To die is gain, because I would go to be with Christ. But it is with all humility that we advance in Christ's likeness. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am meek and lowly of heart. This was a truth that the Corinthian church needed to hear. It is a, church, a truth they needed to learn because they had become a very prideful people. They lived in Corinth, which is a very prosperous city, with all kinds of amenities, and, and that breeds a sense of worldliness and can breed a sense of self-dependence. But on top of that, they were very prideful of their pastors. Their founding pastor was the Apostle Paul. Hard to do better than that. He was there for 18 months. Usually Paul is preaching the gospel. He's on to the next town. He stayed a year and a half in Corinth and poured his life into them. And after Paul came arguably the most gifted preacher of the first century, Apollos. And they took great pride in it and would say, I was baptized by this preacher. No, I was baptized by this preacher. And they gloried in all of this. On top of that, they gloried in their knowledge of, of wisdom, worldly wisdom, secular wisdom. Just 35 miles up the road was Athens. And in Athens was the academy. And in the academy was Plato and Socrates and Seneca with their man-centered philosophy to answer the questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? How am I to live? What is death? What, what is on the other side of death? And, and the Greek philosophers had, had all of these, these, these answers that they had contrived, and it had filtered down the road 35 miles, and it was in the bloodstream of the church at Corinth as they were being squeezed into the mold of the world. And this worldly learning was causing them to be arrogant as if they have all of the answers drawn from the culture of the day. On top of that, they boasted in their spiritual gifts. I mean, this was a church that they had spiritual gifts on steroids. I mean, they, 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 they spoke in tongues. They had interpretation of tongues. Uh, they had miracles. They, they had healings. And in the Corinthian church, the, these were actually somewhat real. They hadn't passed off the scene just, just yet. And, and so all of this spectacular uh, dynamics were taking place in the church at, at, at Corinth. And, and all of this fed their ego. They were self-focused self-centered, like, like little babies, Paul calls them in chapter 3, self-inflated, self-absorbed, self-seeking, self-promoting, self-exalting, any and everything that revolves around Seth, self, that was the Corinthian church. They were as self-focused as a regenerated person could possibly be. And the Apostle Paul knew they needed a strong dose of medicine. 
to cure them from this lethal disease of arrogance and pride and self-focus. So under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul reaches into the medicine cabinet and he grabs a potent truth to pour into their mouth, to humble them, to bring them back where they need to be. And it is a potent truth that you and I need in our Christian lives as well. And it is the truth of which I have just read. It is the truth of the sovereign grace of God in our salvation. It is the great pride crusher that our salvation is attributed to God and to God alone. That before time began, God chose his elect and who would be saved. And within time, God called those elect to himself by his spirit. And God himself placed us into Christ. And it was not a joint venture with God in us. It was all completely God's mercy and God's grace and God's favor at work in your life. Your part, you were running away from God as fast as you possibly could. Whether it was active rebellion or passive indifference, nevertheless, you were going away from God and God had to come after you and find you and call you to himself and bring you into the body of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul places this right in front of the church at Corinth to, to knock the legs out from underneath them and bring them back to where they need to be in lowliness of heart and mind, knowing God is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And so to be a, a minister for good in their lives, Paul brings out this towering truth. You and I need this towering truth in our Christian lives today as well. Now, there's one last thing I want to tell you before we get into the text. Please note where this is in your Bible. There are 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. This isn't tucked away, hidden at the back of chapter 16, where only a couple of us will finally work our way back there and get this. No, the Apostle Paul drops this right here in chapter 1, such that you can't even get into the book of Corinthians without having to come face to face with this truth. In reality, this is Christianity 101. If you're breathing and you're in Christ, you need to know how it is you came to be in Christ. And so Paul walks them through this, and I want to walk us through what Paul has laid here. And there are three main headings I want to set before you, and I want to lay them out at the outset so you can know where we're going. This is like the road map. In verse 26, Paul says, Consider your calling. It's right there in the text. And then in verses 27 to 29, consider your election. And then in verses 30 and 31, consider your conversion. So it's very simple, yet very profound. So let's walk our way through this, okay? First, I want you to see in verse 26, consider your calling. It's right there. Notice he says, For consider your calling, brethren. Only the brethren are those who are called. The world has not been called into faith, uh, into faith with Jesus Christ, not by the Holy Spirit. All those who have been called are brethren. And he says, Consider your calling, brethren. This word consider is a very important word. It, it, it actually means to look at something. And it means to look at it long and hard, to stare this down, 
to think very carefully about this. What Paul is saying, what he's about to write in verse 26, 26, don't just glance at this. Gaze upon this. Narrow your focus down upon this. Do not be distracted. Look at verse 26 as though you're looking at it through a keyhole where you can't see anything to the left or to the right. All you can see is this text and this truth. That's what Paul is saying. Consider your calling, brethren. Now, this word calling has a twofold meaning in this context, and I want to set them out for you. The first meaning of this is the call of God to come to faith in Jesus Christ. No one will ever be saved until God calls them. There is an appointed time when God calls those whom he will call, and it is a call so powerful and so mighty that it overcomes all human resistance. It is a call that summons and draws and even subpoenas the one who is called. It is an irresistible call because God is omnipotent. It is an effectual call, meaning it always produces the intended effect. God is the cause. The response is the effect. Consider your calling that God called you out of darkness into light, that God called you out of the kingdoms of this world to be a part of his kingdom. In fact, that is almost the dominant theme in this first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, look with me at verse 2, just very quickly. In verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. You know what the word church means? Ecclesia. It means the called out ones. That's what the church is. And amazingly, so many churches are trying to be as worldly as they can be so they can try to reach the world. And, and God is like, this is so inconsistent. I called you out of the world. I called you out of the entertainment business. I called you out of all this trivial stuff into a relationship with my son, Jesus Christ. Worship him. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, watch this, saints by calling. Every saint is one who has been made holy by God, set apart unto God from the world, and that is the result of God's call. With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please note the order there. There's two calls in verse 2. First, God calls us, then we call upon his name. Saving faith is calling upon the name of the Lord. Romans 10, verse 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why do some call upon the name of the Lord and others do not call upon the name of the Lord? That's a great question. And the answer lies in God. That all those whom God calls to himself produces the result that they immediately then call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason you're a Christian, the reason you have believed in Jesus Christ, is because God has called you. And if he had not called you, you would have remained in darkness. You would have never believed. You'd have never repented. You would have just continued to live as you once lived. And now look at verse 9. He says, God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the call here in verse 9 and the rest of the chapter is not a call unto service, it's a call to the Savior. It's not a call per se to ministry, it's a call into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 24. He says, but to those who are the, who are the called. It's a definite article, the. All believers are part of the called. 
And so when we come to verse 26, we know exactly what he's talking about. A blind man can see it. He's talking about the call of God. Now, you need to understand, when I stand to preach, like I am right now, I issue an external call. It goes to your ear, but it can go no further. The only way it can reach your heart and transform your will is for there to be an internal call that goes deeper than the ear, it goes down to the heart. And that is the call that is being referenced here. It is the call of God by the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 26, he says, Consider your calling, brethren. It also has calling here the uh, meaning of where you were when you were called and what you were when you were called, who it was who was called. And so he now, in the middle of verse 26, he gives us three negatives on who was not called. And as we look at this, this is so opposite of the world. This is so antithetical from the way the world operates. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. By adding according to the flesh, we understand that this wisdom is not heavenly wisdom like James 3. This is worldly wisdom according to the flesh, sinful flesh. And the reference is to what I alluded to earlier uh, is to the academy in Athens and the great minds of the day that really shaped the worldview and shaped the thinking of the ancient world, uh, the entire Roman Empire, really, but especially here in Corinth. These who were wise are those who were well-educated with a secular education under the influence of the academy. They have worldly learning, man-centered education, elite schooling at the great institutions, but they are simply being taught that from man and through man and to man are all things, to man be the glory forever. Amen. And what Paul says here is God just walked past those and leaves them in their sin. And God has chosen to call those who in the eyes of the world are foolish. In other words, God has chosen to reach all the way down to the bottom of the barrel and to call those in the eyes of the world are unwise. Now, please note the word many, not many. It doesn't say not any. It says not many. There, there are a few who went to the elite institutions of the world, but it was not because of what they learned there. It was because of what God would make of them. Uh, I was reading, uh, in fact, just yesterday, um, being reminded of George Whitfield, the great evangelist uh, of the Great Awakening in the 18th century, and Early in his ministry, he undertook to begin an orphanage, which became a financial burden and hardship upon him for the rest of his life. And there was a woman in, in England who uh, was of a very elite family. She wasn't royalty, but the next rung down from royalty. And she lived on a massive estate in a massive mansion like Downton Abbey, and she would gather her friends to come into this mansion, her, her very wealthy friends, to hear Whitfield preach. And there's a spiral staircase, and he stood on the staircase, and he preached this text. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. She was a strong believer, and she basically underwrote Whitfield's itinerant ministry. And she said, I have been saved by an M, the letter M. But this text does not say 
not any mighty, but not many mighty. Oh, there are a few who are successful in this world. Praise God for them. But you know what? They are the rare exception. For the most part, those whom God calls, they're, 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 they're not in the elite schools of this world. Anybody could look at the elite universities of this world and know that. And then he advances, says, not many mighty. And when he says not many mighty, that, that, that means those not many prominent people in the, in the community or in the country, not many influential. He hasn't called many who are mighty in politics or mighty in education or mighty in finance or mighty in fame and fortune. No, God doesn't work through them on the most part. Those who are strong and powerful in the community. That's not how God operates. And then he says, not many noble. And this word noble is a very interesting word. It's a compound word, which means two words merged together in the original Greek language. And the main root word is genes. You can almost hear genesis in it. And it means birth, regeneration, and the prefix is eu, E-U, which means good, like a eulogy is a good word spoken at a funeral. And this word noble, eugenes, literally means those who are well-born. They're the upper class. They're the social elite. They are the privileged class. They are the blue bloods. They are the aristocrats. And there'll be a few called out of the club. But they're the exception. Whom God has chosen to work through are people just like you and me. People who are nobodies in the eyes of of the world. If you were starting an NFL football team, you know what you'd want to build that team? You'd want first round draft picks. You want the fastest, the strongest, the most talented to put a team together. You, you, you don't want 16 round draft picks. You want first round draft picks. If you're building a college football program, you know what you want? You want five star athletes. You don't want walk ons. You don't want one-star athletes. You want five-star athletes. That's how you build success in the world. You want to get into a, a leading university. You, you want the highest LSAT scores. That's not how God operates. When God puts together his church, God works for the foolish the weak, and the common. And I'm going to tell you in a little bit why he does it this way. So that no flesh will glory in his presence. You know, it can be tempting as a church. I've been a pastor now for almost 40 years. It can be tempting to say, you know, if we just had... I was going to say the governor... <laughs> I forgot what state I'm in. <laughs> Let me retract that. <laughs> we don't walk <laughs> as he is. Um, if we just had certain elite people join our church, our work would really take off. If we just had some better zip codes in our church... This would be just a great ministry. That's how man thinks. That's not how God thinks. And that's not how God purposes. I want to say it again. God chooses to take a bunch of nobodies and turn the world upside down 
so that nobody can say, well, look, they had all the movie stars or they had all the financiers or they had all the politicians. Well, then they would get all the glory. But this way, God gets all the glory. So I say to you this morning, you need to consider your calling. I mean, how many Rhodes Scholars do we have here today? Just stand up. How many Miss Americas do we have here? Just stand up. How many, how many billionaires do we have here? Just stand up. How many NFL team owners do we have here today? Just stand up. How many senators, sitting U.S. senators are here today? Just stand up. Well, then this must be a pretty good church. Because this is who God chooses to work with. You understand this? You need to consider your calling. And this should be encouraging to you. Because sometimes we think, well, I just need to become this, or I wish I had been that, or whatever, so that I could serve the Lord better. I'm not putting down education. If it's the right, God-centered education. But you should be encouraged that God delights in taking nobodies and turning the world upside down. God delights in taking a bunch of fishermen and flipping the Roman Empire. God delights in taking a, a, a little baby floating in a basket down the Nile River to bring Pharaoh down. God delights in calling a moon worshiper, idolater, out of Ur of Chaldees to begin his chosen people, Israel. This is how God works. By and large, it's what the world would call the scum of society. These are God's lottery picks. These are God's five stars. The world just doesn't know it. Now, please know second. Consider your election. Paul now shifts from focusing upon their calling by God to their being chosen by God. And this is the doctrine of sovereign election, that God chose before the foundation of the world those whom he would set his heart upon and give to his Son to come into this world to be the Savior and commission the Holy Spirit to bring them to faith in Christ this is God's sovereign choice. And it is not this fictitious God looking down the tunnel of time to see who would choose him, and then God chooses them back. That's so bad, it doesn't worth, it's not worth my comment. So verse 27. Look who God chose. But God has chosen... You just need to know this word chosen means to choose out from among many possibilities. He didn't choose everyone. He made a very discriminating choice. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. This is the opposite in verse 26 of the wise. Foolish in that they're foolish to the world. I mean, you stupid Christians... Don't you know there's a woman inside that man's body? You're so stupid. This word foolish, it's a Greek word. I'm going to pronounce it. You're going to hear the English word in it, moros. I knew you'd recognize it. Read the room here. Moron. In the eyes of the world, we're a bunch of morons. Mentally dull intellectually sluggish, stupid, dim-witted. We just don't get it. That's who God has chosen. In the eyes of the world, those who are total fools. He says to shame the wives. Ha! To, to shame those who are well-read, who are well-educated in secular lies. And God has chosen the weak things of the world. Those who are weak in financial clout, they're weak in political muscles, 
They are weak in social standing. They, they are the very opposite of the mighty in verse 26. They, they are weak in influence in this world. And God does this to shame the things that are strong because God will work through these who are weak to turn this world upside down. And then he says, in the base things of the world. And this word base, it's an interesting word. It's the very same word as noble at the end of verse 26, but with a prefix ah in front of it and an a, and ah uh, turns it to the very opposite. Like a museum is a place you go to muse or to think. Amusement is a place you go not to think, just to be mindless. And so the word here, the base things, the ah noble, these are those who come from a lowly family background. They are those without any impressive pedigree. They are those of ignoble birth. They are those who were, as it is, were born in the basement of the social structure of the world. And they're the very opposite of the noble at the end of verse 26. And so God has chosen those who are base through whom he will carry out his work. And then he adds, and the despised. God has chosen. The despised means they are utterly despised by the world. They are treated with contempt. They are despicables in the eyes of the world. But these are the ones God's chosen. These are God's first-round draft picks. In the eyes of the world, we're leftovers. In the mind of God, these are the ones I've chosen. And then he says, the things which are not, <laughs> that word not, that, that, that means they're not anything. They're absolute nobodies. The world doesn't even know they exist. Their, their, their names are not on signs. Their names are not in the paper. Their, their names are, they're just non-existent people. They didn't make who's who, they made who's not. And this is who God has chosen to work through. Again, I think we should be pretty encouraged here today. Because God delights in taking the least of the litter, a little shepherd boy with some peach fuzz on his chin to bring down Goliath. He doesn't go get the oldest brother. He gets the youngest little brother who's just been keeping the sheep over on the other side of the hill. That's who I'm sending into battle so that no flesh will glory in my presence. That only God could have done this. So he says at the end of verse 29, so that here's why he, God, may nullify. And the word nullify here means to render inactive, to render inoperative, to, to overturn and take it down. God does it this way so that he may nullify the things that are. Now here's verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. When I was in seminary, I went to seminary. I had such a man-centered theology and I came face to face with this truth of God's sovereign election. I utterly rejected it. This can't be true. Um, until God finally pinned me to the mat. And he opened my eyes to see that it is true. And before that, there was a lot of stinking pride in me. I had worked at the bank, Memphis, Tennessee, First National Bank. The mayor had designated me to run me for office. I was on this career track. 
and God summoned me to preach, and I walked away from it all. I remember going up to the 30th floor and telling the president that I'm, I'm going to seminary. He thought I was, had lost my, my mind. And I got to seminary, and I'm confronted with verses just like this, and I'm, I kept saying, my God can't be like this. This can't be true, but God has chosen who he's going to save until I finally saw that it was true, but until I did, here, here was the egotistical attitude that was inside of me. God sure is lucky to have me in the ministry. And when I saw this, I missed it 180 degrees. No, I wasn't doing God any favor by serving him. He had done me the favor by choosing me and by calling me. And for the rest of my life, I must serve him. I needed to have the starch taken out of me. I needed to have the, the rug pulled out from underneath me. I needed to be brought down to ground zero. I needed to be humbled. And the doctrine of election brings you to the point of you asking God this question. Why me? And if you don't ask that question, you just don't get it. You don't know that you don't know. You need to be brought to the point. God, why would you choose to save a wretch like me? Why would you call me out of Noversville to come serve you? It's what the Corinthians needed to hear. You're not as good as you think you are. You, you need... You need a dose of the sovereign grace of God to humble you. And I want to tell you, it so humbled me that I literally hardly did not open my mouth for three months. I was stunned. I was in awe that God would have singled me out to serve him. Has God called you to himself? Have you considered your calling, who you were and where you were when God called you? Have you considered your election and your being chosen? You need to gaze at that long and hard and let it sober you, let it humble you, let it mature you, let it empower you to serve him for the rest of your life. And until you come to that point, you're not playing with a full deck. Until you come to that point, there is still a lot of you in you. Now, I've run out of time, so I'm announcing the start of a series here at Mission Bible Church. <laughs> and I understand there's a parking lot out there and some kind of constraint that is put upon me. Let me just tell you the last third point. And I won't even look at my notes. Verse 30 and 31 is the third last heading. Consider your conversion. And there's a million things I want to draw to your attention, but I'll just limit myself to the first four words, by his doing. It's not by your doing. And it's not by our doing. Us and God. This is what you call monergistic. That there's only one operating 
agent. It's not two cooperating agents. That's called synergism, synergistic. This is monergistic, that it is God and God alone. Verse 30, but by his doing, God's doing, God's independent, autonomous doing from A to Z, alpha to omega, the beginning to the end, the sum and the substance, the comprehensiveness of the entire enterprise of salvation. It is by his doing. And God will not share the glory with anyone else who wants to say, look what God and I did to be saved. No. God only sings solo. He doesn't share the mic or the spotlight with anyone else. It is by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus. It it was God who chose you, God who called you, God who sent his son to die for you, God who brought you to himself, God who convicted you, God who gave you repentance. It was God who gave you saving faith. It was God, 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 God. This has to be the right interpretation because he gives God all the glory. We're not even singing backup for God. Our mics are turned off. It is God who gets all the glory. Selah, pause and meditate. Let that sink in. Who by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. That's the cross, the wisdom of the cross. Only God in his infinite genius could have designed the way for him to be both just and the justifier. That holy God could receive unholy sinners and God not violate his own righteousness or his own holiness. It's all in the cross. Only God could have come up with the wisdom of the cross to send his his own son, his only begotten son, into this world to be born of a virgin, to, to live a sinless life, to go to the cross, to bear our sins, to be buried, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Only God could have come up with that. It's the wisdom of God. All else is foolishness. And pouring out of the wisdom of God is righteousness. That's what's imputed to us in justification by faith. Sanctification. The cross has broken the tyranny of sin over our lives. We'll never be the same again. We have a new master. And redemption, he's paid the price for our sins completely. And it ends in verse 31, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I was in college, I went to school in West Texas. It's way out in West Texas, prairie land. I served the Lord a lot, preached a lot, taught a lot while I was in college. And I remember one day going over to another dorm to pick up a guy who would like play guitar for me, singing before I would speak. And I walked into his dorm room and there's a poster on his wall. I can still see it. And it's a fence post on a Texas prairie. And there's barbed wire on it. And on top of this fence post is a turtle. Turtles don't climb fence posts. Turtles don't fly. And the caption underneath, it just simply said something to the effect, the turtle didn't get there by himself. Someone had to come along and pick up this turtle and walk over here and put it on top of the fence post. That's exactly what, if you're a Christian, that is exactly what God has done in your life. From all eternity past, 
God has walked over to you and picked you up out of the pit of sin and, and the world and the devil. And he has lifted you up to heavenly places. And he has set you and put you in Christ. You didn't do that. God did that. So how could we be prideful? Let me just tell you this. I have zero reason to be proud. I have every reason to be humble. I just keep forgetting it. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. You are what you are, Christian, by the grace of God. And you have zero reason to ever be puffed up, arrogant, demanding, self-focused. You are a trophy of grace. Walk in humility. If you've never been saved, you need to, this moment in your heart, confess to God what a wretched sinner you are and plead for mercy and ask God to forgive you and to commit your life to Christ. You need to do that now, this moment. And if you will do that, He will save you. He will forgive you. But there is no other safe but Jesus Christ.